0: All right, let's turn in our Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Chapter 8. And let me read through the passage we're going to be studying tonight, and then we'll back up and elaborate. We're going to start this evening at Mark 8, chapter, uh, verse 27. Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. Then he charged them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and scribes, and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke this word openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. And when he had called the people to him with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now I read that whole passage because I really want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 16 which is the parallel passage, but Matthew gives us a little more detail, and so I'd like to kind of study it out of Matthew's gospel tonight. Same basic passage. Matthew just gives us a little more detail. Now it says, when Jesus, in verse 13, came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi was all the way up at the very northern border of Israel, border of Israel right before you crossed into... Uh, Syria and Caesarea Philippi was at the base of Mount Hermon which is where the Jordan River begins now Caesarea Philippi was originally called Panias, and it was given by Caesar Augustus to Herod the Great who built a the city there and named it Panias after the Greek god Pan who was the god of nature who Greek mythology claims was born in a cave nearby. So Herod the Great built a city there, named it Panius, but his son Herod Philip inherited it after Herod the Great died, and Philip really expanded it and made the city glorious, and he renamed it Caesarea after Caesar Augustus, and he tacked his name onto it, Philippi, not only to kind of honor himself, but also to distinguish between this Caesarea and the other Caesarea, which is on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean Sea, west of Jerusalem. So today it's modern day Banyas. And the reason it's called Banyas is because the Arabs can't pronounce peace. So, you know, they used to call it Banyas, but, but they couldn't pronounce the peace, so they called it Banyas. Anyways, they're up in this area, and as I said, at one time, the Jordan River, as an underground spring, shot out from the rock face uh, up about 100 yards up the uh, of Mount Hermon, and uh, it used to shoot out there as a waterfall, and that's how it kind of, the Jordan River began, but some underground uh, earthquake activity has kind of shifted the flow of this underground stream, and so now it starts about 100 yards from the mountain down on the uh, ground level and you can go there and see it and all, and we were there and we saw it and all, and it's a very beautiful area, very beautiful area. Jesus was way up there because he was in kind of a self-imposed exile. Uh, Things were really boiling down in Jerusalem over him, and he didn't dare go down there yet. His time had not yet come. As a matter of fact, many commentators believe as, as we come to this section in Mark's gospel, we are now one year from the cross and some even believe six months. So between a year and six months from the cross. Uh, Things are boiling in Jerusalem and they're beginning to really simmer up in Galilee. That's why he's kind of left the region of the Galilee to go up way up to the area of Dan the tribe of Dan which is where Mount Hermon was and uh, he's kind of away with his men. Remember we said now very shortly he's going to be setting his face toward Jerusalem to come and to, of course, go to the cross. He hasn't been real direct with these guys in a lot of ways because of their spiritual dullness of heart. There's a lot of things they just couldn't comprehend, and they're getting better. But even up until the night of the Last Supper, he says in John 14 or John 16, many things I, yet, I have yet that I want to tell you, I, I, much that I want to tell you yet, but right now you're not able. When the Spirit comes, the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, He will lead you into all truth and reveal all the things that I've spoken to you. So uh, it was a progressive thing. They were growing in knowledge and grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, but uh, they were still not ready for a lot of things, and yet Jesus knew the time had come now to begin to be more direct in their spiritual upbringing, their spiritual learning. He began now to reveal to them things that he hadn't really been direct about, such as the cross. But before he tells them he's going to go to the cross, which is the first time he's going to say this to them he first wants to reassure them or reveal to them which they already know we're going to see that that he is the christ the messiah so he's way up there and he's spending this quality time with his men kind of building into them because he knows soon he's going to be taken from them and after the cross and resurrection he spends 40 days more after his resurrection with them and that's it he's gone physically Of course, he'll be with them always spiritually through the Holy Spirit, but he's realizing that soon the mantle is going to be passed on to them to carry on the ministry he has begun. And he really needs this time to really build into them teaching because soon they're going to be taking over. And so he goes way up to this area of Caesarea Philippi, a very beautiful area, and he turns to them and says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Now, folks, that is the most important question that any human being will ever have to grapple with. I mean, eternity hinges on that one question. Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Now, of course, I'm confident everyone here would get that right. But, you know, there's a lot of confusion, even in this so-called Christian country of ours as to who Jesus Christ really is, the most important question mankind ever has to grapple with, and so many people are dead wrong. Now, it wasn't any different back in Jesus' day. There was a lot of misconceptions, and so they said to him, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, why? Why did they think he was these things? And by the way, they didn't think he was these guys reincarnated, okay? Okay? Some people misunderstand that. Some believe he was, uh, he was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Why? Well, remember when John hit the scene, what did he come preaching? What was his message? He had one string on his guitar. What was it? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's all he did, basically, was prepare the way for Messiah by telling people, look, get your acts together, guys. You soldiers, stop oppressing people. You tax collectors, stop extorting people. Uh, All you folks need to get your lives morally cleaned up because Messiah is coming. Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus, when he began his public ministry, that was the first word out of his mouth. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so some equated Jesus and the message he came to deliver with John the Baptist. Hey, maybe he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's what Herod thought, right? No, some said, no, we believe he's actually Elijah come down from heaven. Remember, Elijah never died. He was translated, you might say. He was taken in a fiery chair. He was raptured, okay? Uh, And some believed, hey, this is Elijah. Come back down. Because, of course, the uh, Old Testament closes by God saying, I'm going to send you Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord, see? Now, why Elijah? Elijah was one of the great miracle workers of the Old Testament, and people looked at Jesus' ministry and said, look, man, lepers are cleansed. The blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. This guy is Elijah. Come back from heaven. You can see why they would make that correlation. Others said, no, we believe he's Jeremiah raised from the dead. Why Jeremiah? Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. Jeremiah had a compassion for people, for his people. But he wanted to see people saved. He wanted to see people right with God. He wept all throughout his ministry because God, how'd you like this ministry description? Jeremiah, I'm going to send you to my people, but I want to tell you up front, no one's ever going to get saved through your ministry. No one is ever going to get saved. Boy, that's a tough one to deal with. You're you're never you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be hounded, you're going to be looked upon as a traitor, and no one's ever going to get saved through your ministry. But Go out there and tell them what they need to know. They need to get right with me because they're living in apostasy. And so all throughout Jeremiah's ministry, he wept. The weeping prophet he was called. And people said, look at Jesus' compassion for the lost. Look how he wept by the tomb of Lazarus, who was not lost, of course, but he was weeping there. And how he wept over different you know, places and people. Certainly this is Jeremiah. Look at the compassion this man has for the lost. Others said, well, we believe him to be one of the other prophets. Now, the ministry of a prophet in general was to speak for God. The prophets were spokesmen for God, and they also were teachers of God's truth. Once God revealed to them something that He wanted the people to know, the prophet spoke it forth. And then it was His responsibility to keep reaffirming it, to keep driving it home to the people, to, keep, to elaborate on it if need be, explain it, and help them to apply it into their lives. And so some looked at Jesus Christ as the greatest, one of the prophets, the great teacher. You know, that's who he, they claimed Him to be. He was a, such a teacher. In fact, we know that when the soldiers went to arrest Him at the temple, the, the Pharisees sent the the temple guards to arrest Jesus and they came back and was John 8 and they didn't they didn't have him and they said where is he and the guys were like starry-eyed no man ever spoke like this man I mean they were they got so caught up in his teaching they just sat stood there listening to what he was saying they got so caught up in his teaching they left empty-handed they never did arrest him so some people say you're one of the prophets the great teachers of Israel But notice what Jesus says then, as he does to every human being, he said to his men, but who do you say that I am? You know, gang, it's not important what everybody else says about Jesus, right? It's not important what everybody else thinks of Jesus as to who he is or what he's all about or whatever. And notice that all of these guys that people thought Jesus might be were not the Messiah. So apparently none of them believed he was the Messiah, but simply a forerunner of Messiah. Why? Early in his ministry, there was a lot of Messiah fever going on. you know. But as time went on, it became more and more clear he was not going to lead them in a revolt against Rome, that he wasn't acting the way the Messiah was going to act, at least not in their minds. So they began to abandon the idea that he was the Messiah. Even John the Baptist had second thoughts, right? When John was in prison, he sent some of his disciples and said, are you really the Christ, or should we look for another? And what did Jesus say? You tell John the blind are see and the deaf hear and the lame walk and so on and so forth. He pointed to all the works that he did which were spoken in the Old Testament of Messiah that he would do when he, when he did come. But there was this confusion. But Jesus personalized He said, look, who do you say that I am? And that's how it always is, right? Doesn't matter what everybody, doesn't matter what you know, my mom or my dad or my wife or my brothers or my relatives think about Christ. The only thing that matters is what do I think about Jesus. Who is he? Who do you say he is? That's a serious question, a very serious question, the most important question any person will ever have to answer. And Simon Peter answered, and he was kind of like the group spokesman. Uh, he always kind of chimed in first. Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon bar Jonah. Bar means son of. Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah. Simon means shifting sand. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Now wait a minute. This is not the first time these men declared Jesus to be the Christ. This was not a new revelation, really, if you think about it. In John chapter 1 when Philip went to get Nathanael and said look we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, Nathanael said can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said well come on and see. And so as they were approaching Jesus, Jesus said look behold an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, speaking of Nathanael. And Nathanael said how is it that you know me? And Jesus said before Philip called you I saw you sitting under the fig tree implying Nathanael was a good distance away and Jesus supernaturally saw him sitting there and Nathanael was so flabbergasted by this revelation that he said you are the Son of God you are the King of Israel. So he recognized him to be Messiah there but Jesus didn't say upon that rock I will build my church. Later on, when Jesus fed the 5,000, remember? And then Jesus began to send some away because they were only following him for the physical needs. And Peter said, uh, they they left him, and Peter said, only you have the words of eternal life, and we have come to know and believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Well, why didn't Jesus say at that time, upon that rock, Peter, I will build my church. Or later on, after he fed the 5,000, he walked on the water. Remember how that... He went up on a mountain to pray, and they went across the sea. He told them to get into a boat and cross the Sea of Galilee. And that night, a tremendous windstorm arose, and they were tossed to and fro on the Sea of Galilee for anywhere from 8 to 12 hours. And finally, he comes walking to them out on the sea, and they thought he was a ghost. And you know the story how Peter wanted to come to him, and Jesus had come on, and the whole deal. And when Peter started to sing, because he took his eyes off the Lord, jesus reached out and grabbed him and they both walked to the boat together and immediately it says they were at the other side and it says they got out and they worshiped him and they said you are the son of god now why did he say at that time i will build my rock i build my church on that rock because if you think about it all of those responses were responses emotional responses to physical miracles uh, it's almost like they were, Nathaniel was saying, Oh, you saw me into the fig tree? You are the Christ. Uh, you fed 5,000 with a small amount of food? You, you are the Christ, the Son of God. Uh, you walk on water? Certainly you are the Christ, the Son of All of these were emotional responses to physical miracles. Only Peter, right here in Matthew 16, comes to a logical conclusion based on spiritual revelation. It's a well-thought-out conclusion based on supernatural revelation. You say, why is that so good? I'll tell you why. Because it's too easy to give the Lord an emotional response. Uh, It's too easy to make a declaration of faith based on an emotional response. Give it some examples. It's too easy for a person whose child is sick or whose husband has just gotten into a car accident and the child or the husband's life is hanging in the balance, it's too easy for people to say, God, if you're real and if you'll heal my son or my child, if you'll spare my husband, I will believe in you. I will walk with you. I will follow you. And so God touches the child or heals the husband, and it lasts for about, what, five or six months maybe, and that's it. Or for the person to say, God, after 30 years of working at the same place, I've just been laid off. God, if you'll give me a job, I will will believe in you. I will follow you. And so a door opens up for a new job, and that lasts about maybe a month or so, and, you know, it's over with. Jesus knows that those emotional responses to his supernatural workings do not make a good foundation for him to build upon. It's only when a person has studied the evidence, looked at the facts, And allowed God to work in their hearts and then comes to Jesus Christ and says Lord I've studied the evidence I've looked at the facts and I've come to a conclusion based upon the facts and the evidence that you've worked in my heart and revealed that you are the Christ the Son of the Living God you are my Savior the Son of God and when you give that response to Jesus it's not an emotional deal But it's a well thought out conclusion based on God working in your heart, speaking to your heart, revealing the truth to you. As you look at the evidence and all, and you come to him and say, Lord, not because you've healed my son, not because you've spared my husband, not because you've given me a job when I was out of one, but because, Lord, I have studied the evidence. I have weighed the facts and I have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responds by saying, blessed are you upon that rock upon that confession i will build my church you see that's the kind of faith jesus wants to build upon the only kind of faith he can build upon it's not emotional uh it's well thought out it's a conclusion based on the facts and upon the lord the spirit holy spirit revealing to your heart that jesus is in fact the son of god now Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has misinterpreted this to mean... That Jesus was saying to Peter, Upon you, Peter, I am going to build my church. Which many believe, of course, the Roman Catholic Church then teaches that Peter was the first Pope appointed by Jesus, the first bishop of Rome, that he was made the head of the church on the earth, the the absolute, supreme, authoritative representative of Jesus Christ on the earth, and that this office of the Pope. Uh, was successive. In other words, uh, it was handed down from one pope to the next who became the supreme authoritative representative of Christ on the earth. And whenever the pope speaks ex cathedra, which means speaking in his official capacity as head of the church, he speaks with the same authority as God does in His Word. Not only is that scary, it's unbiblical. Jesus Christ did not Say, Peter, upon you I'm going to build my church. Jesus Christ does not build his church on any human being. All you got to do is know a little Greek to know that this is not what the Lord was talking about here. Because he's using a play on words. First of all, he was Simon. Then he was named Peter by Jesus. The word Simon means shifting sand. And Jesus is using a play on words. He's saying, Simon, or shifting sand, son of Jonah you are peter but the greek is petros and petros in the greek is a little stone but upon this petra a huge bedrock i will build my church jesus wasn't saying peter i'm going to build my church on you you're saying peter you're a little stone but upon this this huge rock i'm going to build my church what huge huge rock Peter's declaration of faith is confession, which he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ is built upon. Jesus Christ is no mere man. He was no not just some great teacher or moral leader or religious man. He was the Christ, the Son, the only begotten Son of God. And that's what the Church of Jesus Christ is built upon, that truth. That revelation, that confession of Peter. Not Peter, because he was a little stone. Now it's true that the word Petros is interesting because a Petros was broken off of a Petra. Oftentimes a soldier, for whatever reason, wanting to get a piece of rock or stone, would take his sword, tip and jam it into a Petra, a piece, a slab of bedrock. He'd twist it and break out a little Petros. The Petros actually came from the Petra. And I think, again, Jesus Christ is using a kind of an, a spiritual illustration here. Peter, you are of me, but you're just a little stone. We're all living stones being built up into a holy house for God, right? Peter was a, was one of those building blocks. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're of me. You're a chip off the old block. You're of me, but you're a little stone. I'm the rock, say, the Son of God. And upon me, upon that declaration of yours that I am the Son of God, I'm going to build my church. Now, we know that, again, Peter was not the first pope. He was not infallible by any means, as a matter of fact. It goes on to say uh, later on that, um, that well, of course, you know, we know he denied the Lord, uh, which, of course, was uh, a sin to do. Uh, and people say, well, that was before he was filled with the Spirit. Well, and uh, Galatians 2.11 uh, Paul rebuked him to his face because he was trying to put the Gentiles under a Jewish yoke of bondage and trying to get them to, you know, live up to the Jewish laws and all. And, and Paul says, That's we couldn't even do that, Peter. Why are you putting the Gentiles under this yoke of bondage that we couldn't even keep? See? So Peter was by no means infallible. Also, later on in Matthew 20, they begin to argue among themselves, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And if they had all understood Jesus, I mean, if, if Jesus meant Peter to be the first pope of the church, the absolute authoritative representative of Jesus Christ on the earth in human form, they would have said, well, they would have never argued about who was greatest. They would have said, well, Peter, he's the greatest. The Lord just said he was going to build his church on Peter. No, they were arguing among themselves. Because they understood that Jesus was not talking here about Peter. He was referring to himself. And upon this rock, he said, I will build my church. Now, the word church is the Greek word ekklesia, and it literally means a called out assembly. We have been called out of the world by the Lord to be separated from the world, to live for the Lord, and be used by him to reach the world, even though we are still in the world, we are no longer a part of the world, right? Right? Now, that's what the Church of Jesus Christ is all about. We're no longer of this world. And Jesus said, If you were of this world, the world would love you, because the world loves its own. But because I've called you out of the world, therefore the world is going to hate you and persecute you, even as they have me. So get ready, gang. It's not going to be an easy road. But Jesus' Church is something very special to him. Of course, there were believers in the Old Testament. They were not really a part of the church, though. They were Old Testament saints. Only the church is called the bride of Christ in Scripture. And while, of course, we will occupy heaven with the Old Testament saints and the tribulation saints once the church is taken out of the world, yet there still seems to be a special place in God's heart for the church, his bride. And so Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church. And I wish more people would read that and understand that Jesus said he would build his church. With all the church growth stuff going on today, all the people who have sat down and brainstormed the best way to Reach the world for Christ and build the Church of Jesus Christ. And they've sat down, they brainstormed and they say, "Well, we've got to do demographic studies to find out what kind of people we have. Are they blue collar, white collar? What kind of people are they transient? What, what are, you know what are they? Then we've got to canvas the community and find out what people want in the church. And then we'll put together kind of a profile. And we'll then we'll, we'll design a our, our user-friendly church based on all the information. And so people are trying to build the church of Jesus Christ. When well, Jesus said very clearly, hey, I will build my church. I will build my church. Just be faithful to doing what I've told you to do. And I will build my church. I don't have to worry about building the church. I can't. I can do my part. I can exercise my gifts. I can plant. I can water. But only God gives the increase. Only the Lord can add to the church daily those being saved. It isn't by power, by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. This is how the work of God gets done. The church seems to have drifted from that. I think it was A.W. Tozer who said, If you were to take the Holy Spirit out of the early church, 90% of what they did would come to a screeching halt. If you were to take the Holy Spirit out of today's work for the Lord, 10% of what the church does would come to a halt. Because we have too many men planning instead of praying. Too many men brainstorming instead of on their knees, seeking the mind of God as to how he wants to reach this area for Jesus Christ. But you know, even as there was a lot of confusion back in Jesus' day as to who he was, and believe me, he knew what people were saying. But he wanted his disciples to grapple with that question of who is this guy, you know? And the various answers that they gave as to who people thought Jesus really was, I think is interesting because today in a sense, across America and across the world really, you have the same kind of misconceptions. And churches being built on one of these profiles that they believe Jesus is really all about. You have today people who say, well, we believe that we're gonna build our church on the John the Baptist model. Because that's who Jesus really was. You know, and we're going we're gonna, to you know, call ourselves the first moral majority church. And we're going to get out there. We're going to begin to picket the 7-Elevens and all the places that are carrying the pornographic material. We're going to write our congressmen. And we're going to get out there and make our voices heard. We're going to tell people to repent. We're going to call America back to, to a moral sanity and uprightness. First moral majority church. The John the Baptist style. Repent get right. Then you have people that say, well, no, we're going to build our church on the Elijah model because that's really who Jesus is. That's what he's all about. We're going to call our church Miracle Center. And we're going to have the signs and wonders. man. we're going to have miracle rallies. We're going to see people wiped out in the spirit, slain in the spirit. We're going to see all kinds of supernatural things going on. It's going to be incredible. Miracle Center, the Elijah model. Then you have people who say, no, we're going to build our church on the Jeremiah model because that really is who Jesus is. That's what he's all about. We're going to have a heart for the lost, World Outreach Evangelism International Fellowship. <laughs> and we're going to have a million-dollar missions budget, and we're going to preach the lost at every service get out there and evangelize and we're going to finally expand worldwide someday and we're just going to really focus on the lost because jesus wept for the lost and jeremiah was the weeping prophet and that's all we're going to do is focus on reaching out to the lost and then some take the one of the other prophets models they take the prophets in general thing you know and they're teaching centers. In fact, this would be, you know, the word Christian fellowship and teaching center church. And these, this is the church that, you know, says we're going to have three-hour marathon Bible studies five days a week. We're going to emphasize the Greek. We're going to teach the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. We're going to be hermeneutically incredible and exegetically sound. And we're going to really teach people how to exegete. And, and we're going to get into the scriptures and we're, Teaching, 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 because that's what the prophets did. This is the model for our church. Each one of those has an element of truth in it, doesn't it? Each one of those is good, yet they are imbalanced or unbalanced by themselves. Jesus didn't respond to any of those, of course, because he wasn't really any one of those. He was kind of a combination of all of them, in a sense. And it wasn't until Peter said, well, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's when Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. upon this rock I will build my church. You know what? I don't think the church is, is about ministry, in a sense. Sure, that's the outflow of it. That's the fruit of it. But the church of Jesus Christ is a love relationship between his body and himself, between his people and himself it's a love relationship and you know what that's what it's all about when you come and say lord i just want to fall in love with you i want to know you i want to be intimately involved with you that's when he says blessed are you and that's really what the church is all about and i'll tell you this when you love jesus christ with all your heart soul mind and strength when you love him and not reaching out and doing anything for him I think so Oftentimes, we in the church emphasize what the church should be doing for Christ instead of its relationship with Christ I think so often we're driving into people's minds evangelism, prayer Bible study signs and wonders repentance and so on and that's all well and fine, I'm not saying it's wrong I'm just saying we're emphasizing what we should be doing instead of what we are Jesus gave the be attitudes, and we kind of facetiously refer to them as not as do attitudes, but as be attitudes. And they revolve around being for him. The doing is an outgrowth. But when you're connected to him, when you love him with all your heart, you know what? Suddenly you want to live a moral life. And you begin to impact people's lives in a positive way not because you're standing over them going thou shalt not thou shalt not thou shalt not but because they see in you with such a love for Jesus Christ which has changed your whole life they want what you have and when they receive Christ into their hearts they change morally when you love Jesus with all your hearts signs and wonders follow spirit-filled Christians don't they God still does miracles today I'm convinced of that but they should never be the focus they should trail behind spirit-filled Christians. If you love Jesus with all your heart, you're going to have a heart for the lost. You're going to weep on your knees in prayer for them. You're not going to have to necessarily drive into people, witness, 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 get out there, evangelize, put the guilt trip on them. Why aren't you witnessing? Why aren't you bringing people to Christ? You're emphasizing the love of Christ. Suddenly you want to tell people about the Lord. Healthy sheep naturally reproduce. And of course, the teaching of the Word is also very important, but you'll love to come and hear the Word of God. You won't have to have your arm twisted, you know. You want to study the Word because it's a love letter from the one you love, and it just comes naturally. So we need to understand that the church is not what we do for Christ as much as it is how we relate to Christ. That's what makes us part of the church, His body, that we love Him and give Him our lives and desire to used by him and jesus said you are peter on this rock i will build my church and the gates of hades shall not prevail against it now it's good they translated this hades and not hell in your as your king james do because it really isn't hell in the sense of the lake of fire he's talking here about hades the hebrew is sheol and it means the the grave the place of the dead and Jesus talked about the place in the center of the earth somewhere where the dead went, uh, you know, where before, before he went to the cross, all people went. Those that did not believe in a Messiah, did not believe in the promises of God, to send the send of Messiah, went to the torment side of Hades. You can read about this in Luke chapter 16. He talks about the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus died being a believer, was taken by the angels to Abraham's bosom, the paradise side where he was comforted, right? But Hades was the place where the dead were kept. They were imprisoned. Because Jesus Christ had not yet died for sins. He hadn't conquered over death. And Jesus is saying here, of course, in gates, or the word gate in the Bible often refers to the seat of authority. When you came into a town the elders or the um, aldermen of the city would sit at the city gates, it would be comparable to our western, uh, where the mayor is, the what do you call that? My, my mind is blank. Hall? City Hall, thank you. I don't know why that was so hard, but couldn't, couldn't grab onto it. Uh, yeah, comparable to our city hall. That's where the authority of the town was. And Jesus is saying here that against my church, the authorities of death which would also include satan and his demons would not prevail death would have no power over the christian as paul said death where is your uh, victory oh, uh, grave where's your victory Oh, death where's your sting see we have been freed from that oh we'll die physically unless jesus comes to rapture us before that which i'm kind of hoping for but the idea is that this body may wear out and die, but I will never, my, the real me, which is spirit, will never die. I'll be taken to be with him for all eternity. So Jesus conquered over death and over the forces of Satan. And it's our responsibility to let the world know that. And the writer to the Hebrews says those people beforehand lived all their lives in the fear of death, but no more. Because Jesus has conquered over death. And it becomes our responsibility to let the world know that. The thing that sin brought into the world, the ultimate consequence of sin, eternal death, physical and eternal death, Jesus Christ has conquered over. And in him and against his church, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So we are going to be victorious. Jesus Christ promised us we would be victorious. That is, if we did everything he told us to do. Victory is not automatic. I mean, you know, but it's ours if we will do what he said to do. And so against my church, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my called out ones. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, and here's what the Greek says, will have already been bound in heaven. See, that's very important. And whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. In other words, we're not down here on the earth calling the shots, doing our own thing, and God's looking at us going, okay now, here's what they've decided, I better go ahead and ratify it up here in heaven. No, it doesn't work like that. Jesus said, you know, Father, uh, Thy will be done on earth even as it is in heaven. And the idea is that the Lord is calling the shots. The Lord has the ultimate authority, but He has delegated His authority to His church over some matters. As a matter of fact, back as Jesus closes out Matthew's gospel, he says here in chapter 28, in verse 18, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He said, all authority has been given to me. And he gave, before he before he went to the cross, actually, he gave to his disciples, his church, that authority. He said, I give to you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So Jesus Christ passed the authority that He had to His church. Now the keys of the kingdom are interesting. And no, they're not as one pastor on the radio taught. Each key was a some kind of a name it, claim it doctrine that opened up the doors and gave you your Cadillacs and your hundredfold returns and all that baloney. That's not what Jesus was talking about. When you have keys, I'm assuming that they're yours, you didn't find them or somewhere. You have keys in your purse or your pocket. It speaks of ownership or stewardship. Either you own something, those keys open, or somebody's given you their keys to something they own and asked you to watch over their house or look after their car while they're on vacation or On a trip gone away on a trip or something see but those keys speak of ownership or stewardship now it's interesting that my wife has the same exact set of keys that i have we both have keys to the chrysler we both have keys to the front door the garage door she has the same she's my bride i'm her bridegroom and we both have the same keys Uh, we both share in ownership of what we have. I'm the bridegroom, she's the bride. The same is true with Christ and His bride. Jesus Christ is the head. He is the owner of heaven and earth. But He has given to His church a set of keys to use to bind and loose with. Now you say, well, what does that mean? That was a very common rabbinic term. Binding meant forbidding, loosing meant permitting. And it was a very common rabbinic thing. And Jesus Christ is giving to His church the keys of the kingdom. What does that mean? It means He's giving them the authority to let people into the kingdom of God. In other words, into salvation. And it's not just Peter. Okay? Some people say, well, He gave Peter only the keys of the kingdom. No. In chapter 18, it talks here in verse 15 through 20 about church discipline. And he's here talking about all the disciples. And you can read this, it's, it's about church discipline. And uh, down here in verse 18 it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will, be, will have already been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, where two or three or more are gathered, so on and so forth. And so he's talking here about binding and loosing again. In this context, it talks about church discipline. If you bind somebody through church discipline, they are forbidden to fellowship anymore in the local congregation because they haven't repented. If they do repent, you have the authority to loose them in a sense to permit them to continue to fellowship with the local body because that authority was given to the church and in particular church leaders. Later on in John chapter 20, the night that Jesus rose from the dead. He said to them here in verse, now well, let's back up to verse 21. He appears to them in the upper room and he said to them, Peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are, for, uh, are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. And again, the Catholic Church, I'm just not really meaning to pick on the Catholic Church tonight all night. I was catholic so i understand some of this but uh, again the catholic church interprets this to mean that jesus gave to his apostles and to his later on his priests and all the authority to forgive sins see through the confessional and through confessing your sins to the priest the priest has the authority to forgive sins on the earth Uh, that's not what jesus is saying here he's basically saying the same thing he said in a different way in matthew 16 and matthew 18 He's talking about binding and loosing, forbidding or permitting. He says, whosoever sins uh, you retain are retained, whosoever sins you uh, forgive are forgiven. Well, what does that mean exactly? Well, to get the passage that kind of clarifies it, Acts chapter 10, when Peter is at the house of Cornelius, he's preaching to the Gentiles there and they, gets, they got saved. Then he makes a statement in verse 43, says, to him, Jesus Christ. All the prophets witnessed that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive what? Remission of sins. That's how somebody's sins are remitted, and that's how somebody's sins are retained. And basically what Jesus Christ is saying to his his disciples, to us as his church, because he gave this authority not just to Peter, James, John, and the apostles, but to all of his church. He's given us, in a sense, the keys of the kingdom. All of us. And it's our responsibility to let into the kingdom those people that belong there, and to keep out those people that don't belong there. And we do that by telling them, as Jesus has given us authority, when we preach the gospel. See, it all is connected to the gospel. When we preach the gospel, and somebody says to us, I don't believe that Jesus Christ has given us authority to say that I have been authorized by Jesus Christ to say, your sins are not forgiven, your sins remain, and you are not a part of the kingdom of God. And after hearing the Gospel, if somebody says, I believe, I want to receive Jesus Christ, and they do, then Jesus is authorized to say to them, your sins are remitted, and you are now, have now entered the kingdom of God. Because the key, of course, is believing or not believing in Jesus Christ. That's how we bind, that's how we loose we forbid or we permit based on somebody's acceptance of Jesus Christ because as Jesus said upon this rock I will build my church and if anyone can't say I believe that you are the Christ the son of the living God and I give you control of my life they're not a part of the kingdom they cannot enter the kingdom and it's our responsibility to tell them that and unfortunately today in the church people are letting people a lot of people believe they're a part of the kingdom when they don't believe what they must believe to be saved so they're not being good stewards over the charge that Jesus Christ, he gave us a set of keys to the kingdom. So now you better use them wisely. You better be good stewards. You better not give anybody the impression they're in the kingdom that has not believed in me. And if they have believed in me, you better not make them feel they're not a part of the kingdom simply because they don't subscribe to some particular doctrine you happen to hold in your particular fellowship. It's a tremendous responsibility to be... A gatekeeper in the kingdom of God. And we better do it properly. We better present the gospel in such a way that we don't water it down, that we don't present a kind of a cheap grace, easy believism type of gospel that allows people to think they're saved and yet hold on to their sin. But we also better be careful that we don't present a legalistic gospel and tell people, well, because your hair is a certain length, guys, because you smoke, because you go to movies, because you dance, because you do certain things, you can't be a part of the kingdom. We better also be careful because a lot of people have been turned away from God and turned off to God because some people in the church thought they were doing what was right, but in reality they were keeping the door locked to somebody who truly did believe and really is by grace we are saved through faith and nothing else. And so this whole idea of binding and loosing. And it has nothing to do with positive confession statements. I bind you, Satan. I loose you, Satan. Read the context. Uh, we were talking, Kathy and I, just this week about Matthew 18 a little bit and how Jesus said, Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I will be in the midst. And how many Christians have taken that to mean, oh, prayer. Wherever two or more Christians are gathered, Jesus is right here in the midst of us. Well, we know he's, he's that. We know he does. he's always with us. But if you look at the context, he's talking about church discipline there. He's not talking about prayer. So often Christians will not look at the context when they read the Word of God. They will pull something out and begin to misapply it. And like you said with the Roman Catholic Church, if you do that, I mean, sometimes you can really open yourself up to some real false doctrine. And so for 1,500 years, the Catholic Church has misinterpreted Matthew 16 and built a whole church on it. And it hasn't been accurate. And we need to know what Jesus said and understand what He meant by what He said before we act on it. And then He commanded His disciples that they should tell no one that He was Jesus the Christ. Why? Why do you think that? Harry finally kind of tells them that He's the Christ. I mean, why? Because they barely understood the realities of it, you know? And Jesus Christ didn't want more emotionalism. Don't forget there was still a real segment in Israel that still looked to Him as Messiah. Palm Sunday, Kingdom Fever came to a real fever pitch as they were all lining the streets going, Hosanna to the Son of David, save now, and so forth. And that a lot of that was emotionalism uh, based on their misconceptions of who uh, or what he was going to do for them when he came. We'll see that in a moment. So Jesus wanted, he didn't want to get people all whipped up emotionally. He wanted to keep things calm. He wanted his disciples to, for this, at this time, to keep it to themselves. I think especially until they were spirit-filled and were able to really, Handle it and present it and live it properly. So verse 21 and 2, From that time Jesus began to show to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, can you imagine this, that this should happen to you. This shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, that was the harshest thing Jesus ever said to anybody, Pharisees and scribes included. You have to understand the Jewish mindset. From the time these, these Jews were little boys, they were taught that someday, and remember, they were living under the yoke of Rome roman oppression roman domination of their land the land god had given to them they didn't belong here they had no business in god's land that he had given to his people and so from the time they were young boys they were taught that when when messiah comes he was going to be a man of he would be a conquering hero He was going to throw off the yoke of Roman oppression. He was going to establish the kingdom for Israel. And all Jews would be his prime ministers in a sense. And they would all reign with him over the whole earth. And it would would be a time of glorious peace and prosperity for all of Israel. And they were looking for that. That's what their, their mindset. So much so on the day of Palm Sunday. When they were saying save now, save now. They weren't saying save us from sin. They were saying save us from Rome. See, that's what they were crying out. We read that and go, well, they're yelling to be saved spiritually. No, they were yelling out for him to save them politically from this Roman yoke of oppression that they believed Messiah was definitely going to free them from. So the disciples at this point even, although the spiritual light was beginning to burn brighter and brighter in their hearts and minds, there was still a lot of carnality as to why they were following him. And, and remember how they were still arguing among themselves who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. Who was going to be the prime minister? Who was going to be, you know, they were looking for positions of authority and prominence in the kingdom on the earth. So their motives for following the Lord were not entirely pure by any stretch of the imagination. Now, this is the first time in Jesus' ministry He has revealed to them He is going to be going to the cross. First time. He first revealed to them He was Messiah. They had to know that before they could ever understand or grapple with this cross deal. And remember this. The cross was the most humiliating, torturous instrument of death you could ever imagine. It was reserved for only the grossest criminals. In fact, it was against the law in Rome for a Roman citizen to be crucified. They didn't even execute their own citizens that way. It was such a shameful, painful, humiliating way to die stripped naked hung on a cross for everyone to see an open spectacle of shame plus this agonizing death you were suffering for hours and sometimes days before you finally died it was so inhumane that after a while even rome outlawed it that's how terrible it really was and it was incomprehensible for these men to think the messiah was going to die let alone be crucified and at the hands of the chief priests and scribes you see, you have to put yourself into their position. This absolutely blew their minds. I mean, apparently, all they ever heard, and Jesus revealed this three or four times to them before the actual cross, all they ever heard when he said this to them was, the Son of Man is going to be crucified. That's it, that, and their minds just kind of turned off. It's common for people to get real bad, a real bad diagnosis where the, where the doctor says you have cancer. And all of a sudden, boom, that's it, they shut off. They never hear what else the doctor has to say, but it's treatable, we can, you know, and you walk out and, they, well, what did he say? I got cancer. I mean, it's all you have really have heard. That's all the disciples heard was, I'm going to the cross, I'm going to die. It's all, they, they never heard, and on the third day, I'll rise again. They never did hear that. So that on that Sunday morning, they rose from the dead. They were shocked, they were surprised. Even though he had told them many times he was going to rise from the dead, they didn't hear that. And so he began to reveal this to them. I mean, they were going to find out eventually, right? He had to begin to break it to them sometime. And yet Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. And Jesus said, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Now, here's Peter just a short time earlier. Jesus says, who do men say that I am? And they all said, well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. Who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus in front of all the disciples praises Peter by saying, Peter, blessed are you, son of Jonah. I mean, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you. Peter, you've just gotten a revelation from my father. And I wonder how that felt to Peter's ego. (laughs) Hey, guys. I get revelations. And he was kind of maybe feeling good about himself and kind of spiritual. But then when Jesus Christ said, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, hey, maybe Peter thought, maybe this is a test. Uh, He he can't be going to the cross. He can't die as the Messiah. So Peter kind of rebuked him, maybe thinking, well, you know, maybe this is a little test Jesus has thrown at us, you know, to see if we'll buy this one. And so he said, Lord, this will not happen to you. And Jesus rebuked him and called him actually Satan. It just goes to show you that one minute you can be a channel for the Holy Spirit to be speaking through. And the next minute you could be a channel for the flesh to be speaking through, motivated by the enemy himself. And we have to be very careful because we know as fallible human beings... There are times when we shine spiritually and there are times when we come across pretty bad, you know? I mean, I'm amazed at how one minute I could be giving counsel that I just really feel the Spirit is pouring forth these beautiful pearls of wisdom and I'm standing there thinking, man, that's good. That's good stuff. Praise the Lord, boy, he's really speaking. And the next minute I'm in the flesh and I'm yelling at the kids or I'm doing some other stupid thing or, you know what I'm saying? I relate to Peter we all have to understand that you know what, just because somebody says something dumb, or they make a dumb statement, or they you know, say something kind of unspiritual, doesn't mean that God can never use them to speak to your heart, or say something to you you know what I'm saying, but we have to be careful, we don't always know when the Father or the Spirit is speaking and when maybe the enemy is speaking through our flesh if Peter didn't know, there's a good chance we're not going to always know And I get very, very, very uncomfortable with Christians who are always saying, thus says the Lord. Walking around, always speaking on behalf of God. God told me this. God told me that. As I hear what they're saying, I'm thinking, no way did God tell you that. But you know what? Can't convince them otherwise because God told me. Well, the Bible says, test all things. Hold fast to that which is good. How do I test all things? Well i got to hold up next to the Word of God, see? I mean, not even the Bereans accepted everything Paul said, but went home and compared it with the Word of God. And we're all commanded to be kind of Berean-like. And if people are saying, thus says the Lord, or saying to, claiming to speak on behalf of God, if what they say doesn't line up with the Word of God, then you can be sure it's not of God. Because God will not speak contrary to His Word. But a lot of people are getting into this whole thing, you know, and they're saying things that I know are not coming from God. God told me, and I've heard this before, this is real, legit, I've heard it from different people, where somebody will come up to a woman and say, God told me you're to divorce your husband and marry me. You laugh at that, but you know what? In some churches that's accepted, and women have actually divorced husbands because this person they believe to be a spiritual man of God has told them, God spoke to them, you're to divorce your husband and you're to come and marry me because we have work to do for the kingdom, and so on and so forth. See, if we listen to that, we're, we're horrified. That's when you have a church that's not really founded on the Word of God, but, you know, hey, we're just going to let the Spirit speak, and kind of go with the flow, and that's when you get into problems. Not that the Spirit will ever mislead you, but <laughs> there's a lot of other spirits that have gone out into the world, and you have to be careful of those spirits that are not of God. Because they can manipulate you, they can speak to you and make you think that they're, they're, they're coming from God, when in fact they are not. And if you remember, Jesus called Peter Satan, get behind me Satan. Why? Because remember in Matthew chapter 4, and I think it was Mark 3, when Jesus was fasting for 40 days and the Spirit led him out into the wilderness and Satan there tempted him? And the first time he appealed to the hunger, he said, make these stones bread and, you know, if you're the Son of God. And Jesus said, uh, it is written, uh, you shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the second time he brought him to the pinnacle of the temple said, throw yourself off, you're the Son of God. The angels won't let you dash your foot against the stone and you'll show everybody what a beautiful spectacle this will be and prove that you're Messiah. And Jesus said, you know, it's written, you shall not put the Lord your God to a foolish test. The final test, Satan brought him up to a high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth in a moment's time and said, all these are mine. And I will give them to you if you bow down and worship me. Satan was well, saying to Jesus Christ, I know why you're here. You're here to buy back the world. You're here to die, to buy back the world from me. But I'll give it to you. Don't go to the cross. I will give you all the I'll give you everything you're gonna die to gain, anyways. I'll give it to you. Worship me and don't go to the cross. And every time somebody says to you, you can be a Christian. And you could have all that God wants to give you, but you don't have to go to the cross. You can run as fast as you can from that person or that fellowship because that's nothing but Satan talking. There is no such thing as a crossless disciple of Christ. I mean, there's no such thing as not going to the cross and yet being one of Jesus' disciples. No such thing at all. And Peter was, in essence, trying to get Jesus to do the same thing. Jesus said, I have to go to the cross. For this cause, I came into the world. And Peter said, you're Messiah. Establish the kingdom. Don't go to the cross. Basically, he was saying the same thing that Satan was saying to him. Lord, don't go to the cross, but establish your kingdom. Without the cross, there could be no kingdom. But Peter didn't understand that. Why? Because as Jesus said, he was mindful of the things of men and not the things of God. There's a lot of people today that we talk about being sinners saved by grace, how that Jesus told us to deny ourselves and take up the cross, and we'll talk about this more next time, they will respond by saying, and these are those in the positive confession camp, you might be a sinner saved by grace, you might be called to pick up your cross and deny yourself, I'm a king's kid. And as a king's kid, I deserve the best of everything, I deserve my Cadillac, I deserve my this and that, And this is the teaching in these fellowships. They're not mindful of the things of God. They're only mindful of the things of men, the riches of this life. And Jesus said, you can't really be a part of the kingdom if you don't go to the cross, if you don't realize that I came to die. And if you're going to follow in my footsteps, then you have to die too, because the only way the work of God is going to get done is if you go to the cross, die to self, to let others see the love of Christ in you, then they will, that love will draw them to me. And that's the things of God. The things of God are not the things of men. The things of God are souls. And Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. That's his ministry. And if we're his church, we're, if we're his followers, that should be the heart of our ministry, right? We read Matthew 28, the last couple of verses. He said, all authority has been given to me. Now go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the mission. Reaching the lost, teaching them, and sending them back out to reproduce themselves. Jesus Christ never died to give us Cadillacs and riches, and big houses. Those are the things of men. Peter was mindful of the things of men. He wanted to be part of the kingdom. He wanted to be prime minister. He wanted the wealth. He wanted the, the affluence and the prestige of being a member of the kingdom. And Jesus said, Peter, your mind is focused here on this earth and it's self-centered. That's exactly what Satan tries to get people to focus on. Peter, be mindful of the things of God. And then he went on to ta- teach them about the cross, which we'll talk about next time. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, first of all, that you have called us out of this world to be your people. Lord Jesus, we love you. And so often we get all caught up in doing and serving. But in reality, Lord, I'm convinced what you really want is us sitting at your feet, loving you, relating to you, being intimate with you, if we would realize that this is the greatest thing, this is the better part, if we will just spend time loving you, that's what it means to be a member of your church, of your body. If we do this, all the other things, all the areas of service will just just happen. They'll just be a natural outgrowth of our deep, deep abiding love for you. Lord, teach us to love you. Teach us to draw close to you lead us into an intimate relationship, love relationship with you Lord. Help us Lord not to be so preoccupied with doing but with but with being. Being at your feet. Being your bride. Being in love with you. Help us Lord because we're so locked into this do mentality. But I think so often we like Martha are so anxious and cumbered about with many things that we miss the greatest thing, that we have been privileged and allowed to sit at your feet and to enter into intimate fellowship with you. Lord, help us not to be unbalanced as a church, but that we would so love you and so lift you up that others would be drawn to you, that we would be a church that is morally right that we would see miracles in our midst that we would weep for the lost and be a church that emphasizes the teaching of your word but all is an outgrowth of our deep love for you help us lord help us to be mindful of the things of god and not the things of man father we ask this now in jesus name amen